Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to transform people's lives. We are here for you. As the title of this episode leads you to believe, I am going to be exploring what the Bible says and doesn't say about LGBTQ people and relationships. But first, I want to say that I would not go out of my way to teach any perspective on this issue to any young people or any youth groups or anything like that. I don't think that's my place. But if a person, including a young person, came to me and asked questions or wanted to have a conversation, I would certainly have a conversation with that person. Otherwise, though, I'm not actively teaching either side of this issue or debate. And my purpose in this episode is not to change anyone's thinking about LGBTQ people. My purpose is to explain how Christians can think differently about them, yet still occupy the same spaces as each other. We can belong to the same denominations, attend the same churches, participate in the same small groups, participate in the same ministries as each other and as LGBTQ Christians, even though we might think differently about LGBTQ relationships. Um, and in this episode, I want to explain why I think that is by explaining the other perspective on LGBTQ people in the Bible than that you maybe haven't heard before or learned before. Um, so the traditional thinking about LGBTQ held by many devout Christians says that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. The words on the page couldn't be any clearer. They couldn't be any more explicit or unambiguous. The Old Testament says, don't practice homosexuality. Paul says, homosexuality is a sin. It's wrong. The Bible, furthermore, according to the traditional view, the Bible gives us moral laws to follow for our own benefit because some behaviors and attitudes are beneficial and some are not. The traditional view would also say that we are all sinners um, and that homosexuality is a manifestation of sin. It's, you know, choosing the flesh um, over the spirit. And furthermore, we need to tell people about their sin. That includes LGBTQ people so that they will repent and gain salvation. That's the most loving thing we can do. It's love the sinner, hate the sin. Another perspective held by a lot of devout Christians says that the relevant scriptures in their historical social context do not address loving, committed, consensual, same-sex relationships. Rather, the Old Testament authors were addressing idolatrous temple prostitution, fertility sex cult rituals, and Paul had in mind Roman and Greek men of some status who abused their slaves, often young boys, and visited prostitutes of both sexes. So in that interpretation, why would we not regard and treat LGBTQ people today like anyone else? The most loving thing is to affirm them. Love the sinner. Don't judge the sin. Leave that up to God. So those are the traditional perspective and a different perspective on what the, the Bible says about LGBTQ people. Notice that the discussion centers on the Bible. You know, as fallible, imperfect humans, we recognize that it's a little bit above our station to declare on behalf of God which people are and are not acceptable to God. So, we point to the Bible as a source of authority. 
But also, as fallible, imperfect humans, we can't say with absolute certainty that our interpretation of Scripture is the only valid interpretation of Scripture. I think we can say that we find one interpretation more compelling than another, or that one interpretation seems more likely to be accurate to what the biblical authors had in mind and intended. And so devout Christians study these handful of scriptures out of the thousands in the Bible that mention homosexuality, and they arrive at different interpretations of those handful of verses. Traditionally, one interpretation of those verses has been a litmus test for faithfulness to the Bible. And by traditionally, I mean really over the last 40 years or so. Um, often, it seems to me like one's interpretation of these verses is also a litmus test for faithfulness of God. The logic seems to be, well, if you don't agree with this specific interpretation of these verses, if you interpret them in a different way, even a slightly different way, um, then you're not faithful to the Bible, and, if you're, and the Bible is the word of God, so you're not being faithful to God. Well, I want to suggest that Christians can believe in different interpretations of the Bible in general, and the verses that mention homosexuality in particular, and yet be equally devout and faithful. And therefore, we can think differently about LGBTQ people, yet occupy the same spaces, belong to the same denominations, attend the same churches, participate in the same small groups and ministries. So again, I want to recap the traditional perspective. The traditional perspective on LGBTQ people and the Bible is pretty straightforward. The Bible says it's a sin. It says it's wrong. And this is a moral law that's universal for all people in all places. And uh, people who don't follow this are living in sin and unrepentant sin. And we need to stand against that. We need to call that out partially so that we are faithful to God and what we believe, partially in the hopes that those people will repent of their sin and get right with God and find salvation. I think that's a pretty accurate description of the traditional perspective, um, as I understand it at least. But there's another perspective, and that is to interpret the relevant verses or scriptures in their historical social context. Now, I've listened to about 300 hours of the Bible Project podcast, so I've listened to about 300 hours of Tim Mackey and John Collins interpreting the Bible in its context, putting the scriptures and the narratives and the stories of the Bible into their ancient social, cultural, historical context. To me, a contextual interpretation of scripture or a contextual approach to scripture makes a lot of sense. It's very compelling. And that's in large part because during my long commute over the last several years, I've spent 300 hours listening to a PhD in Hebrew studies and Near Eastern studies do exactly that. And when I and in listening to Tim Mackey, I find that the Bible, he illuminates the Bible so much. Things that were kind of meaningless become much more meaningful. Things that were really confusing, didn't make any sense, all of a sudden make a lot more sense. Thanks to the way he contextualizes the scriptures in their historical, social, cultural context. And he, I think, does a really good job, too, of pointing out areas where um, we as you know, 20th century, 21st century Christians and Westerners 
uh, very far removed in every way imaginable from the world of the biblical authors, we sometimes impose our views and our perceptions and our ways of thinking onto the biblical text. You know, just a quick example of that would be, you know, uh, Genesis says God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what do we mean by that? In our minds, we picture the earth as this blue, uh, pale blue dot floating in space in the solar system. And we picture the solar system and the Milky Way and the cosmos and galaxies. Um, and that's, I think that's a very valid way to interpret those verses. I think God did create the universe and the heavens and the earth. But the ancient Israelites meant he created the ground under my feet and that I can see stretching out to the horizon and the sky above my head and the stars that come out at night um, because they didn't have in their mind a mental image of earth as this spear floating in space. We didn't have that as a species until about the 1960s when we started getting, you know, sending astronauts into space. Um, so that's just one quick kind of lighthearted almost example of how different our thought thinking may be from the ancient uh, Israelites. And therefore, we have to be careful not to impose our way of thinking onto the text. Also, we have to work hard to try to understand their perspective and their way of thinking. Um, so another quick example, you know, in um, the book of Matthew, I believe, some Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. Is it okay to get divorced? And he says, no, except for in cases of adultery. Now, if you're just looking at the words on the page, it appears that Jesus is saying, you cannot and should not get divorced except for reasons of adultery. And if you do, you're living in sin. So does that mean that the woman who escapes an abusive husband, divorces him, maybe remarries, that she's living in sin and that she needs to divorce her husband and return to this abusive husband and repent of her sin? Gosh, that doesn't sound very much like Jesus, does it? <laughs> and so I want to suggest that if we, this is a good example for how, why and how we need to read the Bible in its context. If you dig into the historical context, King Herod had just recently divorced his wife for some questionable reasons that angered the Jews over whom he ruled. And the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus because if he answers a certain way, he might anger Herod, and that might put his life in jeopardy, along with you know, John the Baptist, whom he just beheaded. Or if he answers a different way, that might anger all the Jews, and then that, that might undermine his burgeoning ministry. And so Jesus' answer to this rhetorical question, this rhetorical trap, is an attempt to thread the needle and get out of that trap. And he does so successfully. But if you understand his answer in that context, I think it changes how we view that verse in scripture and how we might understand it and apply it to our lives and our thinking, especially when we put that in the context of all the other words on the page about Jesus. And we say, you know, this doesn't sound like Jesus at all. Um, maybe there's more going on here. Maybe I need to dig into the context here. Okay, so hopefully I've created ample space in your mind to hear a different perspective, a more contextual, historical, socially, culturally situated perspective on what the Bible says and does not say about LGBTQ people and relationships. 
So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so people point to this and say, well, right here, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Um, well, a couple things here. One, the word Adam that we you know, translate in our Bibles and talk about as Adam is not referring to an individual person, at least not in the first couple chapters of Genesis. You know, later it does seem to kind of shift to now we're talking about like this individual guy naming animals in Eden. Um, but even then, I think you could still read it as mankind, right? So God created mankind, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So not just the men. Men don't uh, bear the divine image alone. Women also bear the divine image. Women are also of utmost worth and dignity for simply for being made in the image of God. That, I think, is the real intent of this of these words on the page. If you look at the words of the page, it doesn't explicitly say anything about relationships. It doesn't explicitly say, and marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, and so if we're using, you know, that traditional perspective, well, this is what the Bible says, you know, just read the words on the page. And it clearly says this. If you just read the words on the page, Genesis 1:27 doesn't really support a position either way about LGBTQ people because it doesn't address LGBTQ people or sexual relationships really in any way. Um, I think we are imposing on that verse our preferences or our perspective if we're trying to make it address sexual relationships. Similarly, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 24, um, actually 23 24, um, so at this point, God has created. Adam or Adam. He's created Eve, which in Hebrew means life. And so we could read Genesis as referring to God creating humanity as a, a species, a category, and creating life as a kind of a metaphor or category. Um, we could also read it as Adam and Eve, like in the, you know, individual man and individual woman as in the traditional interpretation. My point is, is that something as simple and straightforward as Adam and Eve <laughs> Is more complicated than we realize when we dig into the linguistic, historical, social, and cultural context of the scriptures. Um, so, Adam's been created, Eve has been created from Adam, and the man said, the man, not God, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, so again, you know, you could look at this and say, well, it says right there um, that a marriage is between one man and one woman. And I can see how one could interpret it that way. But if we're, again, just looking at the words on the page, it seems more likely that it's simply trying to explain why people have sexual desire in the first place. Right. Um, why do I as a man have a sexual desire for a woman? Oh, well, because she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. <laughs> Um, and she was taken, you know, Eve was taken from Adam in his flesh. And now I want to become one flesh, I want to reunite with a woman. Right? And so looking at the words on the page, it doesn't seem to explicitly teach anything about proper relationships. It certainly doesn't explicitly exclude the possibility of a loving, committed, covenantal, same-sex relationship. 
And I want to say again, you know, my goal or purpose in this podcast is not to persuade anyone or change anyone's thinking. Rather, I'm just trying to explain as robustly as I can this other perspective and how and why it is grounded in scripture and a contextual interpretation of scripture, as well as some deep theological convictions. You know, be so the LGBTQ issue and how you interpret these handful of verses in the out of the thousands in the Bible, in my opinion, should not be the dividing fault line that it has become, because it should not be a litmus test for faithfulness to the Bible. And it certainly shouldn't be a litmus test for faithfulness to God. Why? Because when you take a contextual approach to interpreting these scriptures, you can see how and why someone might interpret them differently than through the traditional interpretation. And not because they want to go with the flow of culture or because they want to be really popular with secularists or young kids, but rather because they're committed to the scripture, because they're committed to God and want to follow him as best they can. So, um, in Genesis 2, Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 24, I'm not sure that there's really much there talking about relationships. And if you want to say that 2.24 is clearly saying marriage is between one man and one woman, well then a lot of biblical characters in the Old Testament would find themselves on the wrong side of God because they have more than one wife. And yet what we see is that they that doesn't seem to be a problem or an issue. They're not punished for having more than one wife. They don't encounter any natural negative consequences of having more than one wife. Then in Genesis 19, we read the story of God or an angel of the Lord, the angel of death, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Genesis 19, these two angels visit Lot to evacuate him and his family before the angel of death destroys Sodom. And a group of Sodomite men, that's important, Sodomites, these Sodomite men gather around the house and they demand to have sex with these two strangers. And then Lot asks them instead, how about you have my two virgin daughters? This is a deeply disturbing story. And many people uh, will refer to this story and say, well, see, um, these people were sinful homosexuals and God destroyed Sodom. But this story in Genesis 19 is not about sexual desire or relationships. It's about gang rape. It's about a decided lack of hospitality. And Sodom and Gomorrah are also referred to frequently throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it never says, and by the way, they were destroyed because of their practice of homosexuality. Um, the and in fact, Ezekiel chapter 16 explicitly says the sins of Sodom were being overfed and arrogant for not caring for the poor and needy and oppressed. And so Genesis 19, I think, is best understood as a story of a distinct lack of hospitality toward these outsiders, toward these strangers. It's best understood as this group of Sodomites who want to send a clear message to these outsiders about who's in charge, who runs this city. Um, and, uh, and it is not trying to articulate uh, 
anything about sexual relationships or desire. And I mentioned earlier that Lot offers up his virgin daughters. It's striking to me how that part of the story often gets overlooked or left out or just kind of ignored whenever people bring it up to try to make this about sexuality. Um, that's neither here nor there. It's just an observation. So fast forward then in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Do not have sexual relationship, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And I should probably mention all of these verses I'm reading are from the NIV or New International Version translation. So Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable or that is an abomination in some translations. Now, that would seem to be just crystal clear, right? Um, that couldn't be any more obvious and unambiguous in its meaning, right? If you dig into the context, though, it gets a little more complicated. So if you zoom out just a little bit and you read the entire chapter of Leviticus, the, that literary context, that textual context, already begins to complicate how we might understand verse 22. So at the beginning of chapter 18, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. And then you have prohibitions in the following verses against about every form of incest you can imagine. And then you get to verse 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And actually, right before that, in verse 21, we are told, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, this Canaanite god. Uh, in verse 24 of Leviticus chapter 18, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. Okay, so chapter 18 of Leviticus, and really the entire book of Leviticus, seem to be more concerned about don't follow the same customs and religion as the Egyptians or as the Canaanites. Don't engage in all of these weird incestuous fertility cult, sex cult rituals. Did the Israelites have to be told, don't have sex with your mother? Apparently they did. Why? Because apparently some of that was happening in Egypt and Canaan. Why? I don't know, but I'm guessing, um, I'm hypothesizing that it was a fertility thing. Imagine, you know, you're part of an ancient people. You don't really understand how fertility works. Um, you don't really know how a child, you know, the mechanics of how a child's conceived, but you don't understand on the cellular level why maybe this couple conceives, you know, five kids and this couple conceives, you know, struggles to conceive one kid. Um, and so you're desperate to have children because the children are who will take care of you when you're old and feeble. They're who will carry on your line and your name. Um, and you're desperate for children. And you're seeing your Canaanite neighbors popping out kids left and right. Um, you're thinking of back 
about back in Egypt when they were popping out kids left and right, and you and your wife are really struggling to have a child, you could see how it would be tempting to say, hmm, maybe I should do some of the fertility rituals that the Egyptians do or that the Canaanites do. You then choose to engage in this fertility ritual to this Canaanite goddess, Asherah. Um, and that ritual involves visiting a temple or a shrine and having sex with a woman that you know is fertile because she gave birth to you. Or uh, having sex with a temple prostitute who is a, a priestess or um, servant of Asherah. And the really crazy thing is, it works. You know, we all have heard those stories of you know, couples who are struggling to conceive and then maybe they adopt or, you know, something else happens to take some of the pressure off. They decide, you know, let's take a break from trying for a while. But when that pressure comes off, all of a sudden then they conceive, right? And so you could imagine if you perform this ritual that, you know, the Canaanites swear by or the Egyptians swear by or that, um, even some of your Hebrew Israelite neighbors tried and it worked for them and they swear by it. And you do this and you think, okay, now I've pleased Asherah um, and now I, I don't feel as much pressure to conceive. You might then conceive much easier or faster than before. And now you're like, that worked. Okay, I'm hooked and I'm going to spread the good news. Um, so you can see how this would have been this kind of idolatrous um fertility cult and uh, temple prostitution would have been a really big deal for the ancient Israelite people. Okay, so that's the kind of world in which Leviticus is writing and, and talking. Um, and you don't, you know, I, I'm not an expert in ancient history, um, and I'm sure an actual expert in ancient history might have some things to correct me on, but just reading chapter 18 of Leviticus gives a lot of insight into that world. Why have all these prohibitions? And why give these prohibitions in the context of don't replicate the idolatrous practices and religions of Egypt or Canaan? You know, that book ends chapter 18. It starts off saying, don't do that. It ends by saying, don't do that. And in the middle, it has this list of prohibitions of specific things to not do. Um, so just looking at the literary structure of chapter 18 of Leviticus makes me say chap uh, verse 22 is probably not just as simple and straightforward and applicable to uh, loving, committed, covenantal same-sex relationships as it might seem on its face. And then you get into the actual original Hebrew, and some scholars um, think that the translation of the Hebrew in verse 22 should probably have uh, the word couches or beds included in it. You know, do not lie with a woman on the beds and couches of women as with a man. That's abomination. That's detestable. Um, what? What does that even mean? And so those scholars hypothesize, you know, maybe that um, the ancient original Hebrew is throwing in this reference to beds or couches because we're talking about the workspaces of temple prostitutes. So that's way more about Leviticus 18 than you probably ever wanted to know um, or think about. You skip ahead to Leviticus 20. So let's say for the sake of argument um, or the sake of discussion 
that if you still say, um, I think Leviticus 18.22 means what it says on the page. And, you know, I think it's applicable to loving, committed uh, LGBTQ relationships today. Um, homosexuality is a sin, period. Let's say that that's, you know, how you feel. And that's fine. I'm not trying to persuade you to think differently. But I'm just trying to create the space to understand how and why other Christians might think differently. And then so that we can all be in the same church together. <laughs> um, so in Leviticus 20, um, verse 13, we read, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, this verse is explicitly saying that not only is homosexuality detestable or an abomination in some translations, but you need to execute this gay man who had sex with another man. If you're feeling an instinctive recoil or distaste, I would suggest maybe that is the Holy Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicts us to say and helps us to say maybe that that doesn't seem very much like Jesus and Jesus is the fullest revelation of God so maybe I need to reinterpret certain passages of the Old Testament in light of Jesus through the lens of Jesus um, there's a fairly significant theologian and pastor Greg Boyd who actually has written a couple books about this arguing for we have need to read scripture through a cross-centric cross lens or a cross-vision where we read it through the revelation of Jesus. So if we're doing that here, I think we would agree this doesn't sound like Jesus at all. Right? I mean, the Pharisees brought the adulterous woman to him and said, the law says we can stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And he, of all people, had the right to judge her and to stone her or condemn her. And instead, he said, let who he who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone walks away and she says, what do I do, Lord? Or, and he says, have they condemned you? No. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Right? And I know some people would say, well, yeah, I go and sin no more. Well, her sin was adultery, right? So that doesn't, you know, you could say, well, yeah, don't continue on sinning, but that that in and of itself doesn't illuminate for us whether same-sex attraction and relationships are sinful. But the other part of that story is Jesus didn't condemn her, right? So, so this verse in Leviticus certainly doesn't sound like Jesus, right? We, we can't imagine him executing gay people. And so if we read read this in the light of Jesus or lens of Jesus, I think that changes how we understand and interpret and apply it. Um, but also, it, I've never heard anyone with the traditional view of LGBTQ people advocate this verse. You know, you'll hear people quote Leviticus 18.22, but I've never heard anyone quote Leviticus 20.13. Okay, now if we zoom out from these couple chapters of Leviticus to the entire Old Testament, probably the most prominent theme is worship Yahweh alone. Do not worship 
Ashra, Molech, Ra, um, any of these other foreign gods from Egypt or Babylon or uh, Canaan, worship Yahweh alone. And of course, the ancient Israelites struggled to do that. You know, they're they're not very far out of Egypt before they create a golden calf to worship. And you see in throughout the Old Testament their struggle to follow what seems like a pretty straightforward, simple thing, just worship Yahweh alone. Um, in Deuteronomy verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 23, chapter 23, verse 17. No Israelite man or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. So that's really interesting um, that this verse is saying there should not be any cult prostitution. There shouldn't be any shrine prostitutes in the nation of Israel. So in Leviticus, it says, don't replicate the uh, practices of Egypt or Canaan. Um, and in Deuteronomy, in fact, there's a verse that says you've been chosen and set apart as a special nation, as holy, as separate. Um, and then you have all these rules and laws about what not to do. Don't do the stuff that these other pagan religions are doing. Do what I'm telling you to do as a faithful Jew. So in Deuteronomy 23, verse 17, it explicitly says, do not become a shrine prostitute and don't even bring the earnings of a prostitute into the house of the Lord, into the temple. So if we zoom out from Leviticus 18.22, it really seems like the true issue is not the um, homosexuality or the acts of homosexuality, it's the idolatry. It's this fertility ritual practiced at a shrine to the goddess Asherah or some other Canaanite or Egyptian god. And in fact, if we look in 1 Kings chapter 15, we see this story of the king of Judah, Asa. So the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, they both tell Israel's history through the perspective of the successive kings of Israel. And every king is just the worst, like the absolute worst, until the next king who outdoes the previous king. And they just get progressively worse and worse as kings. Why are they such bad kings? Well, it's not because they're necessarily bad at leading the country or governing the country. Rather, it's because they either allow polytheistic pagan worship or they participate in it themselves and encourage it in the nation of Israel. And so then you get to, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 15, we get the story of Asa. So this is what it says. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed his mother, Makkah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah, this Canaanite fertility goddess. Asa cut down that 
idol and burned it in the Kidron Valley. And then this is interesting. He says, although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. So uh, the high places, anytime you see that phrase in the Old Testament, the high places is referring to places of worship, usually places of pagan worship. Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't think it ever refers to an Israelite temple, always uh, some pagan temple. Um, and why does it say the high places? Well, they're all on hills and mountains and things like that. Um, so Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what did he do? He expelled the male shrine prostitutes and he destroyed these idols. So let's assume Asa was familiar with the Torah, familiar with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So he knows that Leviticus 18.22 says homosexuality is not okay. He knows that Leviticus uh, 20.13 says execute homosexuals. And then he also knows that in Deuteronomy it says do not practice cult prostitution. There should be no shrine prostitutes among the Israelites. But notice that here he's praised as a righteous king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he only followed one of those. He expelled the male, male shrine prostitutes. He didn't kill them. He didn't kill their customers. As far as we know, he didn't, ex from this text here, he didn't expel or banish the customers. You know, if you're just quoting individual verses or even you know passages and not connecting them to other relevant passages um you know it could seem like the traditional interpretation just is all there is you know how could you interpret this any other way you know leviticus 18 22 says it plain as day but when you zoom out and look at the entire old testament you notice things like this in first kings chapter 15 where this righteous king um, doesn't seem to have a problem with homosexuality in and of itself. His problem is with the idolatry, the shrine prostitutes. And then, you know, I'm very aware of the danger of cherry-picking verses. I'm very aware of proof texting, of looking for this specific verse to prove what I want to think or, or the argument I want to make. Um, but if you look at 2 Kings... And the, in chapter 23, we get another similar story in King Josiah. Um, so this is a remarkable story. King Josiah uh, discovers the book of the law, the Torah, and it leads to a huge repentance, a huge transformation in King Josiah and in Israel, because he then leads the nation in this transformation. So um, I'm picking up at the beginning of chapter 23 of 2 Kings. Um, King Josiah went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah. Um, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant or the Torah, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Okay, skipping down a little bit. The king ordered Hukalai, the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. You know, so the sun that represented Ra in Egypt and a different god in Babylon. Um, 
So he, Josiah orders the removal from the temple of all of these idols to Baal and Asherah and other gods. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah. So all these you know, smaller places of worship to pagan gods. And, uh, and it goes on to say, you know, he uh, did away with those idolatrous priests who burned incense on the high places, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord, the quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. So let's stop there and think about this. <laughs> this is mind-blowing. So we have not just King Asa, but King Josiah as some of the very few righteous, praiseworthy kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as their ancestor David had done. David's a man after a God's own heart. You read David's story, he's a terrible person. He's awful. But how could he then be a man after God's own heart? Because he worshiped Yahweh alone. He loved God alone. He wasn't messing with Baal or Molech or Ra or any of these other foreign gods. So Asa, Josiah, they're righteous kings like David. They follow Yahweh alone and they get rid of this pagan idolatry that's even in the temple itself. And they expel the male shrine prostitutes. They tear down the quarters, the dorm of the male shrine prostitutes. And they get rid of the cut, they cut down these Asherah poles. They get rid of these tapestries and weavings to Asherah. So again, when we zoom out and we start to connect all these different dots in the Old Testament, I think it's pretty defensible to why someone might think, I don't, I'm not sure the Old Testament's condemning homosexuality in and of itself. I'm not sure the Old Testament says that much, if anything, about loving, committed, consensual, same-sex relationships. It really seems much, much more concerned about pagan idolatry and homosexual practices in that context. So then you go to the New Testament. Of course, Paul is the main writer who addresses sexuality in the New Testament. And, you know, some people with the traditional perspective, they might say, um, yeah, all that may be accurate, Eric, about the Old Testament, but we're not under the Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant in the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to listen to Paul and really focus on what Paul says. Um, and what I want to suggest, and again, I'm not trying to persuade anyone to change their thinking. I'm just trying to explain as robustly as I can how and why other people might look at it differently or view it differently, not because they don't care what the Bible says, but actually because they care deeply about what the Bible says. And they spend a lot of time trying to understand it and interpret it in its ancient linguistic, cultural, social, historical context. So when we put Paul and his writing into those contexts, much like these Old Testament verses, it gets a lot more complicated, a lot more complex. 
So if we look at、uh, Romans chapter one, you know, most people、uh, when we're talking about LGBTQ LGBTQ issues will focus in on you know verse twenty six and twenty seven of Romans chapter one. If you zoom out and look at the whole chapter, Paul is just reaming the the Gentiles, absolutely just chewing them out one side and down the other. Um, why? Well, because they should have recognized Yahweh, the God of Israel, in nature in creation. But instead of recognizing the God of Israel in creation, they started worshiping all these other pagan false gods. And therefore, and this is in、uh, verse twenty-four. And、uh, actually, let me back up to verse twenty-one. Although they knew God through nature, according to his previous argument in chapter one. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Okay, and then in verse twenty-four, therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so Paul does not mince words about the pagans. The pagan, the Gentiles, were the worst because they should have recognized God, and in Paul's mind, where we mean Yahweh, the God of Israel. They should have recognized Yahweh, the God of Israel in creation, but they didn't. They worshipped these pagan gods, and therefore they became.、Uh, God gave them over to their sinful desires, their shameful lusts. They became inflamed with lust for one another. Now, if we just look at the words on the page, you could read that as Paul saying homosexuality is inherently lustful, sinful, and shameful. Or you could be saying, read that as Paul saying that lustful homosexuality is wrong, Sh-、uh, lustful homosexual desires are wrong. That it's not the homosexuality or the same-sex attraction or acts in and of themselves, but it's a lustful version of that. Just like、um, heterosexual people can be lustful. Now.、Um, If you reread this many times, you know it's you really start to realize. I think, huh? <laughs> Paul could have been clearer here.、Um, this is actually this could be read as one way or the other,、um, just based on these words in my English translation. Now, if you zoom out again, okay. So now it's not just you know Romans one, but Romans two. In Romans two. Paul flips the script and he says to his readers, "You Jews aren't any better." <laughs> so chapter one is pagan Gentiles are the worst, and then chapter two is you Jews aren't much better.、Um, <laughs> and so in Romans, the book of Romans, Paul has two audiences in mind: these Gentile Christians living in Rome, worshiping at house churches in Rome, and Jewish converts to Christianity, who are returning to Rome after having been banished for political reasons by the Roman emperor several years earlier, and so you can imagine、um, as these Jews return back to Rome, that churches experience conflict. 
how do we get along with each other? How do we reintegrate this group of people? And the Gentile Christians were kind of looking down on the Jews, Jewish converts saying, well, you know, you follow all these laws and you've got this legacy and culture of laws and we're saved by grace. And the Jewish converts were looking down on the Gentiles and saying, well, you're just, you know, you have no morality and you have no laws um, to guide you in your faith. And um, and we're the people of God, you know, we're the chosen people. We're, you know, the, um, we've always been part of God's kingdom and covenant. Um, and so, Paul writes Romans to tell both groups, stop it. Um, Stop with this division. Stop with this hierarchy. Um, We are saved by grace. And and you all need to stop trying to make, look down on each other and uh, put yourself as better than or ahead of the other. Um, And so chapter one can be viewed as this rhetorical device. Yes, Jewish converts to Christianity um, who are looking down on Gentile Christians, you're right that in the past, these pagan Gentiles were about as awful as you can imagine. Um, But you're not any better, he says in chapter two. So just looking at the words on the page, it's ambiguous. Zooming out and putting these words into their larger context in these chapters in the beginning of Romans um, certainly adds some layers and complexity to it. And I would, I think Paul was, you know, steeped in the Torah, steeped in the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. He was very well aware that um, there were these prohibitions against idolatry and pagan fertility rituals and um, idolatrous uh, cult prostitution. And so I think if we are putting Paul into his historical social context, that maybe gives us some clues about what may, he may have meant by this somewhat ambiguous passage. All right, so let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Um, this is another often quoted verse. Um, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, etc., will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so again, it says it right there, nor men who have sex with men. Very simple and straightforward. Um, If you have a study Bible, or if you're on BibleGateway.com, as I am, there's a footnote for the NIV translation uh, for 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. The words men who have sex with men translate two Greek words that refer to the passive and active participants in homosexual acts. So those two Greek words are malakoi, which literally means like soft ones or effeminate. Um, and that's the word that they translate, uh, that the NIV has chosen as a translation committee to interpret as the passive participant in a homosexual act. The other word is arsenokoitai, which is a word Paul made up. He combined the the ancient Greek word for men, arson, and the ancient Greek word for bed, um, koitai, to create arsenokoitai. And those, uh, so literally that word means man bed. And Paul uses it twice. He uses it here in 1 Corinthians, and he uses it in 1 Timothy. And that's it. 
and no one else in the entire ancient world <laughs> uses that word. That makes it really hard to try to parse out what exactly did he mean by that word. Um, scholars agree that Malakoi means male prostitute, period, end of story. That's not really a debate because that word is used in other contexts by other people um, and it's always consistently referring to, in its context, male prostitution. This other word, arsenokoitai, does not have that kind of context because it's not used anywhere else by anyone else. So this alone should illustrate the difficulty of trying to um, translate ancient languages and then trying to understand the author's intentions with those ancient words. Um, so if we understand you know this phrase men who have sex with men is translating these two different greek words well then other translations make sense because if we look at other translations they translate those words differently um, a lot of other translations will separate the two words and they'll um, say nor prostitutes nor um, homosexuality or they'll say abusers or they'll say even sodomites so the same greek words are being translated as men who have sex with men, prostitutes, homosexuals, um, abusers, and sodomites. So that tells us that different translation committees have different opinions about the best translation of these words. And, and by translation committee, we're talking about people like Tim Mackey, people who have PhDs in ancient Near Eastern studies who fluently speak and write and read ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek and have devoted their lives to studying this. And presumably, they must be pretty devout Christians if they have the desire to sit on a biblical translation committee and or are invited to do so. So, different, very educated, expert, devout Christians can look at these same ancient words and arrive at different opinions about the best translation, the most faithful, accurate translation of those words. So I think at minimum, this should create the space for us as Christians to say, okay, I can see why different people would have different thinking about LGBTQ people. Maybe we don't need to split our church over them. There's yet another wrinkle or further weeds with this word arsenokoitai. Um, this researcher collected modern Bibles dating from Martin Luther's original German translation in the 1500s through German translations into the 1800s, as well as Swedish and Norwegian and several other European countries' translations from that same period. So Bibles in the 1500s through the 1800s translate the word arsenokoitai as the German or Norwegian or Swedish word for boy molester. So in the ancient world, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, it was common for Roman men and Greek men to abuse their male slaves, often younger male slaves. The practice of pederasty was also common. Pederasty was an institutionalized form of pedophilia. Um, a Greek man, or maybe some Romans, but definitely a lot of Greek men would have a little harem of boys 
Um, and the larger your harem, you know, the more status you had, you know, the more um, you were looked up to in society. And uh, it was a harem and you were also mentoring them, um, providing for them. And, you know, as I'm describing it, I just feel repulsed. I, I think that's completely immoral, completely wrong on so many levels. And I have a lot of empathy then for why the Apostle Paul would condemn that practice in the strongest possible language. So what did Paul mean by our sin of koitai? Um, maybe it meant homosexuality. It could have also, given his ancient context, referred to pederasty. It could have referred to Roman citizens who were abusing their male slaves. It could have referred to unequal, abusive, lustful relationships, not loving, committed, consensual LGBTQ relationships as we know and encounter them today. And the German and Swedish, etc. translations from the 1500s, dating back to Martin Luther, into the 1800s, all follow that the way of thinking, that interpretation, and they translate Arsenokoitai as boy molester. It's not until 1946, when an American company paid for a German company to create a German translation, that we see the word homosexuality used to translate that word. Um, and the German language actually invented the word homosexual in the 1800s. So if anybody was going to say, the, here's the argument, right? I, the argument is that if anyone was going to say, ah, oh, we now have a better word to describe what we think Paul meant by this word, it would have been the Germans in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So again, I'm not trying to persuade you or change your mind. I know it probably seems that way, um, but I just don't know how else to explain thoroughly and robustly this other perspective and thus show how and why Christians might think differently about LGBTQ people, but that doesn't mean that they're less devout or less committed to the Bible or to God. And lastly, we can look at the fruit of our theology or our interpretations and applications of the Bible. According to one study, lesbians and gays who reported that religion was important to them were 38% more likely to have had recent suicidal thoughts. For lesbians only, religion was associated with a 52% increased likelihood of suicidal thinking. Another study found for LGBTQ youth aged 18 to 24, parents' religious beliefs about homosexuality were associated with double the risk of attempting suicide in the past year. The Barna Research Group is a Christian organization that it's research and polling and surveys by Christians for Christians. And according to a 2007 survey and study that they did, the most common perception of Christianity is that it's anti-homosexual. 91% of non-Christians aged 16 to 29 in the year 2007 described Christianity as anti-homosexual. 80% of young churchgoers in 2007 said that phrase described Christianity. So the study uh, tried to probe that perception and non-Christians and Christians explained 
that they believe Christians show excessive contempt and unloving attitudes towards gays and lesbians. One of the most frequent criticisms of young Christians was that they believed that the church has made homosexuality a bigger sin than anything else. I think we could all agree that the number one perception of Christianity by both non-Christians and Christians, especially those aged 16 to 30, should be Christ, (laughs) right? The number one perception of Christianity should be Christ or Christ-centered or Christ-centric. Around the year 2000, when I was in high school, I attended a number of youth revivals at local area churches. And there was this particular worship band that was really popular among these revivals and among the kids who attended them. And I remember the worship leader saying, I think homosexuality will be the number one killer of this generation of Christians. And he said, people look at me funny when I say that because I think they think I mean, well, they're going to turn all our kids gay. But what I mean is that um, Christian kids will grow up and think that homosexuality is just not a big deal. Looking back on that 20 years later, I think he was right, but for the wrong reason. I think he was right that homosexuality was and is a killer, but not because young Christians grew up to believe homosexuality was no big deal, but rather because they grew up thinking and perceiving the church as primarily anti-homosexual. They grew up perceiving Christianity as primarily anti-homosexual, anti-people, anti-their friends and family members, anti-people who often seem to exhibit more fruits of the Spirit than the Christians who are actively condemning those people. And now I am going to adopt maybe a little bit more persuasive or argumentative approach here. This is more of a meta commentary, you know, meta, M-E-T-A. You put that little word or phrase in front of any word and, and you're indicating that you're going up a level of abstraction or a level in the discussion. You know, so like a meta narrative is a a narrative or story, whether it's a TV show or a novel that's kind of self-aware. And it's, you know, it's like The Office uh, with Steve Carell, where, you know, there it's a mockumentary. It's supposed to be a documentary, but it's really a comedic show. And they're aware that they're on camera and they look at the camera sometimes. And those camera looks are part of the joke and the humor. That's a meta narrative. It's a story with it that's kind of self-aware of itself as a story. And, and you as the viewer, you're in on that joke. So this, what I'm about to say is more argumentative and persuasive um, in nature, but it's also a meta commentary, if you will. I've heard it said many times that we shouldn't, whether it's about homosexuality or worship music or any, any name, number of things that... We shouldn't cater to culture. And I find that to be a very frustrating line of argument or a very frustrating statement because I think that it's a way of circumventing and avoiding the hard work of really engaging with scriptures and with our theology and with our church history and tradition. Because if we say, well, we're still 
opposing homosexuality and same-sex relationships and we're still not going to affirm them because we shouldn't cater to culture, that tends to be like the beginning and end of that debate for that person or for that position. And so I find that very frustrating because it's, to me, it's not respecting scripture. It's not respecting theology and church history and tradition because it's it's actively not engaging in the hard work of really trying to figure out what is this, what does this mean, what does this say, and what do we do with it? How do we apply this to our lives? Similarly, you could view affirming Christians who question those who do not affirm same-sex relationships as pushing back against what's popular in their evangelical Christian subculture, right? So again, I'm not trying to persuade you or change your mind about same-sex relationships, but in this segment of the podcast, I am arguing that we need to stop saying, well, we can't cater to culture, because that really seems to me to be a way to just avoid engaging in the thoughts, uh, the thinking and the discussion in the first place. Um, And I would argue that those who are trying to engage in the thinking and the discussion, wherever they end up, um, if they end up where you prefer them not to end up, um, they are doing exactly what you say we should do and not going with the flow of culture. Just the it happens to be the subculture of traditional Christianity in this case. To conclude this podcast, I want to throw a complete curveball at you. Communion and baptism are two of the most important, maybe the two most important sacraments or rituals in Christianity. Well, the ancient Greek word for wine is oinos, and you cannot make oinos mean Welch's grape juice, no matter how much you want to. The ancient Greek word for baptism is immersion, and you can't make it mean sprinkling uh, no matter how much you might want to. So, when the Bible is actually very clear in its ancient linguistic, social, cultural, historical context, we don't always follow it to the letter, and that's true even of the two most important sacraments in our faith. So who's going to hell? And how do we decide? Because <laughs> somebody's got to, right? Um, either the Baptists and the uh, Protestants who use Welch's grape juice instead of wine for communion, either they're got to go to hell or the Catholics who sprinkle people instead of immersing them for baptism, they got to go to hell. One per- one group or the other, half of Christianity is going, he- going to hell. Maybe all of us are going to hell because we're all getting one of the major two sacraments incorrect according to what the words on the page say and how uh, what the ancient languages say and how they should be best translated and what they meant for uh, for the biblical authors in their ancient context. So if we ask, what does the Bible say about sexual orientation? As I've tried to explain or describe in this podcast, the answer is, at minimum, it's complicated. Much more complicated than oinos or baptismare. It's entirely possible 
and defensible for different Christians to interpret these handful of verses differently, to approach them differently and with different methods of interpretation, and to think differently about same-sex people and relationships. It's possible due to the complex nature of translating these ancient languages and understanding what they likely meant in their ancient context. And it's also true based on deep theological convictions. Again, my goal in this podcast is not to persuade anyone to agree with this particular interpretation of scripture. Rather, my goal is to explain as robustly as possible how someone could affirm LGBTQ people and relationships because of their commitment to scripture and their deep theological convictions about God. I've laid out that contextual interpretation of the scriptures that seem to address sexuality, but I have not really touched on theological convictions. And that's probably another podcast, but I'll briefly say that for me personally, Jesus' ministry demonstrates and calls us to radical inclusion. Jesus heals people before they do anything. Jesus loves and accepts people and extends them grace while they remain sinners. For me then, I want to love God by loving others like Jesus loves. And I want to trust God with judgment. I think he's better equipped to judge people's hearts and determine where they spend eternity. I hope I've made a convincing case for why Christians can think differently about LGBTQ people and relationships, yet continue to occupy the same spaces, the same denominations, the same churches, the same small groups and ministries. But if not, there's always the next episode. Please subscribe to the podcast. Um, If you're in wherever you listen to podcasts, you should find a button you can tap or click on to subscribe so that you don't miss any of our episodes. Please, if you have a moment, rate and review the podcast and tell your friends and family about it. God bless.